This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 3, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. In this episode, we will be looking at the story of Hujr ibn Adi. And his story is one of the many events that helped to create the separation between Sunnis and Shiites. Now, this story has lots of dialogue and lots of characters. And so to try to keep things kind of simple or a little bit more cohesive, I decided to use accents and voice character characterization so i hope you don't find it too distracting inshallah and i hope it helps you to understand the story better and i hope i don't make myself look too crazy when you hear me speaking in all these crazy voices anyway if you enjoy the show please consider supporting the islamic history podcast you can do so with a pledge at patreon.com slash Islamic History. Patreon is P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon.com slash Islamic History. Stay tuned after the show. During the outro, we're going to go into some insights into the different characters and my insights into this period of Islam. With that, inshallah, let's go ahead and get into Season 3, Episode 3 of the Islamic History Podcast, Ziyad and Hujr. Prologue Medain, capital district of the Sassanid Empire, 36 years ago. Hujr ibn Adi sat on his horse staring at the rushing waters of the Tigris River. All around him, his fellow soldiers were splashing into the water with their horses intent on making it across. Hujr hadn't seen something like this since the days of Khalid ibn Walid. Recent rains had swollen the river, increasing its width and making the waters wild and unpredictable. The Persians had made sure to destroy or capture every single boat and raft for miles around. Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, the current general of the Muslim armies of Persia, was nothing like his predecessor, Khalid ibn Walid. Where Khalid had been brash and bold and maybe even a little reckless, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas was deliberate and meticulous. When Caliph Omar ordered Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas to take over in Persia, many of the soldiers doubted Sa'ad could fill Khalid's shoes. Hujr remembered how Khalid ibn Walid blazed through Iraq, conquering cities at will. But all of those doubts were laid to rest after the Battle of Qadisiyah. From his sickbed, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas directed the Muslims to an astonishing victory against the best of the Sassanid military. And now, the Muslims were closing in on the Sassanid capital, Tessifan. The only thing in their way was the Tigris River. On the other side, a small Persian force was staring in disbelief at the Muslims crossing the river on horseback. No man in his right mind would attempt such a thing. One false move, one stumble, one errant water current, and they'd be swept off and dragged below in seconds. 
a Persian soldier gave a command and a volley of arrows shot towards the approaching Muslims. Under cover of the archers, a Persian cavalry raced into the water to meet them. Arrows above, the river below, and Persian soldiers in front. This madness was something Khalid ibn Walid would do, not Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas. Once again, the Muslims were doing the impossible. To Hujr's astonishment, not a single Muslim soldier was killed. Their shields absorbed the arrows, their horses swam across the neck deep water, and the Persian cavalry was cut down in minutes. The first wave made it across, and a cheer erupted from the rest of the army. Hujr found himself cheering along with them. Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas gave the order, and the next wave advanced into the river. Hujr urged his horse forward, and it obediently splashed into the Tigris. The water came to his ankles, then to his knees, and then to his waist. He could feel the horse's legs churning below him as she swam towards the opposite bank. He looked back and saw some of his fellow soldiers staring apprehensively at the water. What's all you up? He called back to them laughing. Is it this little droplet of water? Then he recited a verse from the Quran. And no person will die except by the command of Allah at a specified time. Hujr and his horse made it to the other side where he joined up with the others in the capture of Tesiphon. The Tradition of Cursing Ali ibn Abi Talib Some Muslims promote the idea that Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan and Ali ibn Abi Talib did not have any real antagonism. They say these two men were swept up in uncontrollable forces that ultimately led to warfare. This hypothesis falls apart when we consider the Umayyad practice of cursing Ali. This practice began after Uthman's murder when Muawiyah would display the caliph's bloodied shirt during Friday services. At first, Muawiyah only cursed those who killed Uthman without naming Ali specifically. But, as the animosity intensified, he began to include Ali. After becoming caliph, Muawiyah continued this practice, ordering his governors to curse Ali and Uthman's killers during every sermon. It is known, however, that Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, the famous Sahaba and Muslim general, refused to curse Ali. The tradition of cursing Ali continued throughout most of the Umayyad era. The only Umayyad caliph to prohibit this practice was Omar ibn Abdulaziz. Omar ibn Abdulaziz was the eighth Umayyad caliph and the great-grandson of Omar ibn al-Khattab. He is often called the fifth righteous caliph. The tradition of cursing Ali did not end until the Abbasids overthrew the Umayyads. Hujr ibn Adi Hujr ibn Adi was a Sahaba who did not take well to the Umayyads cursing Ali. A Sahaba, or companion of Prophet Muhammad, is any Muslim who saw the Prophet during his lifetime. The Tabi'een, or followers, is the second generation of Muslims who followed the Sahaba. Most sources state that Hujr ibn Adi was a companion, but there are some that suggest he was from the Tabi'een. What we do know about Hujr ibn Adi is that he was from the Kinda tribe of Central Arabia. He fought for Caliph Abu Bakr during the Wars of Apostasy and then for Caliph Omar in the conquest of Persia. He was one of the first soldiers to cross the Tigris River during the conquest of the Sassanid capital of Tesiphon. 
When the civil war broke out, Hujr ibn Adi sided with Ali and fought in the battles of the Camel and Safin. He was injured at Safin, but recovered to join Ali in the battle of Nahrawan. When Muawiyah occupied Kufa, Hujr ibn Adi was among several of Ali's companions that were considered untrustworthy. As such, he was forced to pray at the masjid every night. Muawiyah had good reason to be concerned. Hujr ibn Adi and many others felt the caliphate should have stayed within Ali's family. This marks the origin of the idea of a hereditary caliphate. Eventually, this would become a foundational principle of Shiite theology. But at this time, it was just wishful thinking. Hujr ibn Adi gave the bay'ah to Muawiyah and did not participate in any rebellions. Hujr and others used to shout at Mughira ibn Shu'bah, Muawiyah's first governor of Kufa, whenever he cursed Ali. Mughira ibn Shu'bah refrained from retaliating against Hujr, and this may have emboldened him even more. By the time Ziyad ibn Abihi became governor of Kufa, Hujr had a following of about 30 men. Ziyad ibn Abihi would not be so forgiving. The first time Ziyad cursed Ali, Hujr shouted at him just as he did to Mughira. Ziyad warned Hujr that he was heading for trouble. Ziyad did not take immediate action, but privately he told his staff he intended to deal with Hujr ibn Adi. One Friday, Ziyad was delivering a very long sermon. It was so long, people began to fear the time for prayer would expire. Hujr ibn Adi was sitting in the audience and was getting impatient with Ziyad's speech. Finally, Hujr yelled out, As-salat! meaning the prayer. Ziyad ignored him and continued to speak. Again, Hujr yelled, As-salat! Ziyad paid him no attention. Grabbing a handful of dirt and pebbles, perhaps to throw at Ziad, Hujr stood up and his companions followed him. This time, Ziad noticed. He stopped talking, glared at Hujr, then descended the pulpit to pray. After the prayer, Hujr went to the local market and Ziad sent his police to arrest him. When the police arrived, Hujr's supporters chased them away. The police reported back to Ziad who called an emergency meeting of the elders of Kufa. O oh, people of Kufa, why do you hurt with one hand, then comfort with the other? Your bodies are with me, but your hearts are with this obsessed, stupid, crazy Hujr. This is your fault. God forbid, replied one of the old chiefs. We want nothing to do with this man. What can we do to help? Go to your people and find those who support Hujr. Force them to abandon him and denounce him. Ziad ordered his police back to the market. Bring him back to me and beat anyone who stands in your way. The police returned to the market brandishing clubs. Once again, Hujr's friends tried to intervene, but this time the police were ready. Chaos erupted in the market as the police attacked Hujr's supporters. Hujr tried to help, but one of his supporters, a young man named Omer, told him to leave and go hide among his people. The police restored order at the market, then moved on to the neighborhood of Banu Kinda, Hujr's tribe. Some of Hujr's people tried to resist the police, but most were too scared to help. Hujr hid at a friend's house while the police swept through the neighborhood. Ziad closes in. 
By nightfall, Hujud was still in hiding and Ziad was growing impatient. After the evening prayer, he rallied the entire city to join the manhunt for Hujur. The Hamdan and the Mathej go to Banu Kenda and bring this Hujur to me, he bellowed from the pulpit. The Tamim, the Hawazin, the sons of Asur, the Assad and the Ghatafan go to the Yaman and bring Hujur's companions to me. The next morning, the entire city of Kufa was looking for Hujur. One by one, his remaining supporters were arrested and taken into custody. Hujur stayed one step ahead of them. He moved from house to house, staying with one friend after another. He went from the Banu Kinda to the Banu Hut to the Banu Nacha to the Banu Azd. Once he escaped through a hole in the wall in the back of a friend's house just as the police came crashing through the front. Another time, he donned a disguise and slipped past them while riding a mule. Yet again, a woman hid him in her daughter's room while the police searched the house. But Hoja was running out of time. He was alone, outnumbered, and on the run. Most of his supporters had been arrested or had abandoned him. Omer, the young man who helped him at the market, was now in custody. Umer's family met with Ziad and promised that if he spared his blood and property, they'd assist in finding Hujur. Ziad agreed, then had Omer brought forward. He ordered Omer to be bound in irons and heavy weights. Raise him up, Ziad ordered his police. They lifted Omer above their heads. Drop him, he said, and Omer crashed to the ground. Again, ordered Ziad, as Omer's family screamed in protest. They lifted Omer and dropped him again. They repeated this over and over. Stop it, Umer's brother yelled. You promised to spare his blood and property. He is not bleeding, Ziad replied, and I haven't touched his wealth. The family rushed over to Umer where he lay broken and barely breathing. You must pay for all the damages caused by your brother and his friends at the market, and you must assist with finding Hujur. Do you agree? Agreed replied Omer's brother. Very well, said Ziad. You are free to go. On the third day, Ziad received a message. Hujud would turn himself in if he was given a guarantee of safety and the right to be judged by Muawiyah. Ziad had to think about that one. Muawiyah was the type to ponder and negotiate rather than take decisive action. But every second Hujud was free undermined Ziad's authority. Ziad was also afraid Hujud would leave Kufa and seek refuge in another province. Just like that poet, the dumpling. Basra, five years ago. Hamam ibn Ghalib, also known as Al-Farazdaq, or the dumpling, was a Bedouin child whose family had recently settled in Basra. One day, Farazdaq went to the market to do some trading for his family. Upon completing his business, a strange man began to question Ferozdok about the money he made that day. Concerned for his safety, Ferozdok called out to the people of the market. When a crowd had gathered, he threw his money into the air and began taking off his clothes. The crowd laughed and cheered and urged him on. Take off your robe, someone yelled. Ferozdok took off his robe and threw it into the crowd. Take off your shirt! Another person yelled. He took off his shirt as well. Take off your turban! He took off his turban and was now only wearing his underwear. Take off your underwear! Farazduk abruptly stopped. I'm not going to go naked, 
he replied. I'm not crazy. The commotion attracted Ziad's police who were pushing through the crowd towards Ferrarstuck. Someone from the crowd grabbed Ferrarstuck and led him to a horse. The police are coming for you, the man said. You must get out of here. When Ziad found out Ferrarstuck escaped, he arrested his two elderly uncles instead. But Ferrarstuck's family intervened and negotiated their release. Four years later, Ferrarstuck crossed Ziad again. He was a teenager by this time and just developing the poetical skills he would become famous for. Ferozdok composed a poem poking fun at two tribal elders who, in turn, complained to Ziad. At first, Ziad did not remember the young poet. Who is this dumpling? He asked his advisors. The young boy who stripped and grabbed his backside some years back. Ziad remembered and sent his shurta to arrest Ferozdok. Ferozdok went on the run and composed poetry about his exploits. He sang about the speedy camel he used to escape Basra. She moves like a male ostrich whose female ostriches compete during the night. He sang about the time he spent the night hiding in a woman's house. The daughter of al desired me, but someone like me is not desired hiding under stairs. I would prefer to meet you in the open desert. He sang about rumors that Ziad might pardon him. Ziad summons me for the stipend, but I will not come to him as long as someone with noble lineage is giving away money. This was an obvious knock against Ziad's unknown father. Finally, his family suggested he leave Iraq and resettle in Arabia. Ferozdok traveled to Medina where he was granted refuge by the governor Said ibn As. Ferozdok's poetical skills made him famous and he lived the celebrity lifestyle. He had several broken marriages, a difficult relationship with his children, and received both praise and death threats from politicians. His poetry ran the gamut from praising Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, to thinly disguised tales of his romantic encounters. Early Muslim Money the coins Ferozdak threw into the crowd as a child were probably a mixture of various currencies. The Muslim empire had not yet developed a central currency. Instead, they used the coins in circulation from the Romans and Sassanids. When these coins ran out, local governors simply minted copies of the original with a few changes to satisfy Islamic principles. Since Muawiyah did not attempt to establish a standard currency and left it up to his governors, minting coins was sporadic, uneven, and disorganized. Some regions were better at minting coins than others. Despite its close proximity to Syria, Egypt did not mint its own coins until very late. In fact, gold and silver coins were not minted in Egypt until after the fall of the Umayyads. Instead, Egyptians relied on coins minted in Syria and other regions. In other parts of North Africa beyond Egypt, there is no evidence of Muslim-controlled mints until decades after Muawiyah's death. This region took some time to be subdued by the Muslims, and the sporadic coinage is evidence of that. The minting of coins developed faster in Iraq than in Syria. The earliest Muslim coins minted in Iraq were basically copies of the previous Sassanid coins. They even included the likenesses of the Sassanid monarchs. 
The only difference was the phrase Bismillah inscribed on the coins. However, Muawiyah's attempt to introduce an Islamic coin in Syria was rejected. His gold coin was also a copy of the Romans, but the Christians of Syria wouldn't use it since he removed the cross. Many early Islamic coins included both Arabic and Latin phrases. These include an attempt to inscribe the Shahada or Declaration of Faith in Latin. As the Muslim empire developed, the minting of coins became more organized. Over time, the Muslims would completely abandon any likeness to their Roman and Persian predecessors. Within 16 years of Muawiyah's death, the coins were unmistakably Islamic. And by the time the Muslims conquered Spain, all Roman letters were gone and the coins contained only Arabic inscriptions. The Islamization of the minting process took place within a span of about six years. In 691, 11 years after Muawiyah's death, the coins were essentially copies of the Roman coins, but without a cross. In 694, a new coin was minted that included a figure of an Arab wearing robes and holding a sword. The Islamic Declaration of Faith was inscribed in Arabic around the figure. In 697, human representations were completely removed from the coins. The coins now had the Shahada in the center, surrounded by verses from the Quran. This final coin design would become the standard of the Umayyad dynasty and lasted for another 60 years. Even coins minted by succeeding Islamic dynasties were based upon this original design. It should also be noted that the coins minted by the Umayyads were originally only gold, with silver being introduced later. Copper coins were eventually added to facilitate smaller purchases. These copper coins were useful for poor people who otherwise would have relied on barter or credit in order to conduct business. Along with leading the prayer, minting coins was a symbol of power and leadership in the Muslim world. Whenever a new ruler came into power, one of the first things he did was invalidate the coins of his predecessor and order the striking of new coins with his name or likeness. The Chase Ends Hujr came out of hiding and presented himself before Ziyad at the governor's palace. Welcome, Abu Abdurrahman, exclaimed Ziyad, referring to Hujr by his patronym. You bring war in times of war, and you bring war in times of peace. No, replied Hujr. I have not rebelled, nor have I renounced my pledge to Muawiyah, nor have I turned against the state. Oh, but you have, dear Hujr. You cut with one hand and console with the other. Allah has given you this great opportunity. You should not overlook it because I will not. Hujr did not want to debate with Ziad. You promised that Muawiyah would judge me. Yes, I have. Take him away. I have not broken my pledge, Hujr shouted as he was dragged away. I have not rebelled. I have not broken my pledge. For the next 10 days, Ziad focused on two things, hunting down the rest of Hujr's followers and building a case against him. The first part was easy. With Hujr in custody, what little resistance remained fell apart. His followers either turned themselves in or were captured. One of his supporters named Ahmad ibn al-Hamik escaped with a friend and headed for the mountains of Mosul about 280 miles north. The governor of Mosul got suspicious when he learned that two strange men were hiding up there. 
he sent his soldiers to arrest Ahmed ibn al-Hamik. The governor recognized him as one of those who opposed Caliph Uthman and sent word to Muawiyah. Muawiyah responded that Ahmed ibn al-Hamik had once bragged about stabbing Uthman nine times in order the same be done to him. Ahmed ibn al-Hamik was dead by the second blow. Another of Hujr's supporters was a young man named Ibn Khalifa. When Ziyad's police came to arrest Ibn Khalifa, he put up a strong fight. The commotion attracted other members of Ibn Khalifa's tribe and the police fled, fearing for their lives. Ziyad negotiated with Ibn Khalifa's family and they agreed that he would leave Kufa and never return. Altogether, Ziyad arrested 12 of Hujr's supporters, including two of his sons. Ziyad's Case Against Hujr When Ziyad became governor of Kufa, he reorganized the army into four divisions, each with its own general. This was a marked departure from the previous system where the army was organized by tribe. Ziyad had each general sign a statement he drafted outlining Hujr's crimes. These included calling for war against Muawiyah, proclaiming the caliphate belonged to Ali's descendants, attacking government officials and driving them out of the city, praising Ali and asking Allah to have mercy on him, encouraging the people to break their allegiance with Muawiyah, and disbelieving in Allah. Ziyad didn't believe the endorsement of his four generals was enough. He put out a call for the nobles and leaders of Kufa to come sign as well. To boost the veracity of this document, he insisted that each man must have a good reputation with sound paternal lineage. Quite ironic for a man known as the son of his father. By the time he was done, there were 70 signatures on the statement condemning Hujr and his associates. A few of the signatures had been volunteered by Ziyad. Ten days after turning himself in, Hujr and his associates began the journey to Damascus. As they were led out of Kufa, their families met them at the gates, crying and praying for them. This will not do us any good now, said Hujr. If you really want to help, you know what to do. They would have to fight against Ziyad. An old man, watching the prisoners leave Kufa, began to shout, Aren't there even ten clans strong enough to rescue them? How about five? Not even five clans? Two weeks later, the captives were brought before Muawiyah for judgment. Ziyad had sent two more to Damascus, bringing the total to fourteen. Assalamu alaikum, ya amirul mu'minayn. Hujr greeted Muawiyah upon entering his court. The room was crowded with the fourteen prisoners, Ziyad's police escorts, Muawiyah, and several of his Syrian advisors. Oh, now you say amirul mu'minayn. Muawiyah said, By Allah, I don't want to hear anything from you. He proceeded to read Ziyad's statement aloud. In the name of Allah, the Beneficent, the Merciful, to Amirul Mu'minin Muawiyah from Ziyad ibn Abi Sufyan, these oppressors, whose leader is Hujr ibn Adi, have opposed Amirul Mu'minin and declared war on us. Allah has made us victorious over them and enabled us to deal with them. I have summoned the best people of Kufa, the nobles and their chiefs, those possessing intelligence and faith. They bear witness to the crimes of these men and their signatures and names are included below. After reading the letter, Muawiyah turned to his advisors. What shall we do? Their own people testify against them. 
Leave them in Syria, one advisor replied. Spread them out among the villages where they cannot cause trouble. This wasn't really an option for Muawiyah as he did not want these men in his own backyard. Muawiyah was at a crossroads. Hujat ibn Adi was well known throughout the empire and enjoyed a good reputation. Yet, according to Ziad, these men deserved to be executed. His doubts increased when he received another letter from a former judge living in Kufa. In the name of Allah, the Beneficent, the Merciful. To the servant of Allah, Muawiyah, Amir al-Mu'minin, I have heard what Ziad wrote to you concerning my testimony against Hujat ibn Adi. I did not sign that statement and did not approve my name being attached to it. My testimony about Hujat ibn Adi is this. He prays regularly, gives charity, performs the Hajj, enjoins the good, and forbids the evil. His blood and his property are sacred. Still uncertain, he muttered, I wish I had read this one first. He ordered Hujr and the others taken to prison while he considered his next move. He rode back to Ziad. I read your letter and have examined everything you said about Hujr and his companions. I'm not sure if I should kill them or pardon them. How can you have any doubts about this? Ziad wrote back. You have my testimony. You have the testimony of those who knew him well. If you want to keep this city secure, do not send Hujr back to me. After receiving Ziad's response, Muawiyah met with his advisors again to discuss the case. Just let it go, one of them said. Tear up Ziad's letter and let them go free. Muawiyah disagreed. That will make us look weak. The families of some of the prisoners came forward to plead for their lives. Amir al-Mu'mineen, one man said, release my two cousins to my custody. They were falsely accused by their enemies. They are righteous men who would never defy the caliph. I know your family well. I trust you and I know your heart is good. You can take your cousins. Several others interceded for their family members. Muawiyah patiently listened to all of them before releasing five more prisoners to their families. One man did offer to take Hujr under his protection, but Muawiyah refused. Hujr is their leader, he said. If he's let loose in Damascus, he'll corrupt my city. I'd rather send him back to Ziyad. Two of the prisoners, Abdurrahman al-Anazi and Karim al-Khathami, were brought forward. They had asked and received an audience with Muawiyah. Karim al-Khothami spoke first. By Allah, Amir al-Mu'mineen, one day you will face your Lord and you will be questioned about your deeds. You will have to answer for shedding our blood. What do you say about Ali? Asked Muawiyah, ignoring Karim's words. Whatever you say about him. I can't abandon Ali's religion, said Karim. Muawiyah quietly studied him. Finally, one of his advisors spoke up. Amir al-Mu'mineen, this is my cousin. Release him to me. Take him, growled Muawiyah, but let him sit in prison for about a month. The second prisoner, Abdurrahman al-Anazi, was next. What do you say about Ali? asked Muawiyah. Don't ask me that question, al-Anazi replied. It's better for both of us. By Allah, you will answer me. Then I say that he worshipped Allah. I say that he ordered what was right and stood for justice. I say that he used to forgive the people. Very well, said Muawiyah. What do you say about Uthman? 
Anazi hung his head. He opened the gates of injustice and locked the gates of righteousness. You have doomed yourself, yelled Muawiyah. No, I have killed you instead, Anasi shot back. Get him out of here, said Muawiyah. Send him back to Ziyad and tell him to kill this man in the worst way possible. When Ziyad received Muawiyah's message, he had Anasi buried alive. Hujur's Fate The next morning, Hujur watched the guards release the six men pardoned by Muawiyah. Amir al-Mu'minin is being merciful, one of the guards said to him. Renounce Ali and we will let you go also. If not, then you will die tomorrow. I can't do that. Uh, Very well, the guard sighed. We are going outside to dig your graves. You have until tomorrow to reconsider. The remaining eight prisoners spent the night in prayer and worship. When the morning came, they were brought outside and made to kneel before their graves. I saw you all praying last night, and I can tell you are a good man, the guard whispered to Hajar. If you don't want to curse Ali, then just say something good about Uthman. He is the one who started all of this, said Hajar defiantly. Amir al-Mu'minin was right about you. Take your prisoners, he barked to the other guards who forced their prisoners' heads down on stones. This is your last chance. I can't do it. Denounce him. I honor him and I curse those who denounce him. Carry out the sentence, the guard commanded. Hujud heard grunts of pain, cries of fear, and the sound of metal hitting flesh, bone, and stone. Then it was his turn. Wait, he said quietly. Wait, wait. Let me make ablution first. The guard nodded. He released Hujud and called for a basin of water. After he finished washing, Hujud said, I've never made ablution without making two prostrations. Again, the guard nodded. Hujud completed two units of prayer. I would pray more, but you might think I was afraid of death. The guard placed Hujud's head back on the stone and he trembled slightly. You're trembling, the guard said. You are afraid to die. Just say the words and I'll let you go. Of course I'm trembling. I see my grave, my burial shroud, and your sword. I am afraid, but I'm more afraid of my lord's wrath. The guard unsheathed his sword and took off Hujur's head. We close the story of Hujur ibn Adi with the same Quranic verse he recited as a young soldier crossing the Tigris River. وَمَا كَانَ لِنَفْسٍ أَن تَمُوتَ إِلَّا بِإِذْنِ اللَّهِ كِتَابًا مُؤَجَّلًا And no person will die except by the command of Allah at a specified time. Epilogue After his execution, Hujr's grave became a pilgrimage site for Shiite Muslims. A shrine and a mosque were built around his grave. On May 2, 2013, during the height of the Syrian civil war, the shrine over Hujr's burial place was destroyed and his body exhumed. A Facebook posting showed an empty pit where the grave used to be. A rebel group named the Free Syria Army claimed responsibility for the desecration. They said Hujr's body was buried in a secret location. The location of Hujr's body is still unknown.
All right, alhamdulillah, I hope you found that interesting, engaging, and entertaining. So at this point of time that we are discussing with Islamic history, the Shiites and the Sunnis are really not two different sects. The Shiites are really a different political party. That's one thing that you kind of have to understand during this whole period of time. And they haven't developed into two different sects as yet, but Muawiyah's policies are not making things easier. In fact, they are creating a, a deeper rift and divide between these two parties. So at this point, the Shiites are really more like just a, a defeated political party. But Muawiyah's policies of cursing Ali and appointing people like Ziad ibn Abihi as governor are really starting to push the party of Ali, the Shia to Ali, further away from the mainstream. And after he dies, things are just going to get even worse. So let's get into a few of these the different characters in this story. We spoke about Muawiyah a little bit already. His policies were really not that great in many ways as far as um, trying to heal the divide between the the party of Ali and the party of Uthman, if you want to call it that. But despite his missteps, he actually didn't seem to really want to kill Hujr and his companions in the story. And it looked like he tried to give them many opportunities to save themselves. But Hujr ibn Adi and those companions of his who were killed, they their fanaticism or their fanatical love for Ali unfortunately led to their own doom. This is not to blame them because certainly, ultimately, Muawiyah had the choice not to kill them. He could have just let them go. And many of his advisors, as we saw in the story, did advise him to do that, but he chose to ignore them. And instead, he had them executed. But this just goes to show that this is a very complicated time of history and a very complicated story. Now, speaking of Hujr ibn Adi, we mentioned how there was some confusion about whether he was a companion or not. In my main source for this um, episode, which is uh, Tariq Tabari, he is mentioned as a companion, and certainly most Shiite sources that I've come across mention him as a companion also. We, we mentioned that also the definition for a companion is very broad. It is anyone who was Muslim who laid eyes on Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So if Hujr ibn Adi, since he was from Central Arabia, from the Kinda tribe, if he was a companion, he would have had to have been within that uh, delegation of Muslims who came from the Kinda tribe to Medina to pledge allegiance to Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam and accept Islam. Or he would have had to have made that Hajj, the Hujjatul Wada'at, the farewell Hajj with Prophet Muhammad. If he was in one of those cases, he would have definitely have been a companion. Or he could have been one of those people who accepted Islam during the Prophet's lifetime, but never actually got to see the Prophet, which would not let him be a companion. He wouldn't be a companion in that in that case. Nonetheless, the point is that Hujjat ibn Adi, he certainly was by all circumstance, by all uh, evidence that we have, seems to have been a good, upstanding, righteous Muslim. He just had a really, really strong love for Ali. And that love for Ali led to his own doom because, I don't like to use the word doom, led to, led to his own problems because it also 
led him to blame Uthman for all the problems that were going on in the Muslim world. And that is something unfortunate. I don't know how else to put it. He, he really messed himself up by not being able to just say the words that Muawiyah wanted to hear that would have saved his life. Okay, moves us on to the next character, Ziad ibn Abihi. What can you say about that? The man was a maniac. He was a tyrant. He, you know, absolutely demanded. He demanded absolute obedience from everyone. And when Hujr defied him, it just seemed to drive Ziad crazy. And he was going, he was willing to go ahead and forge this document, blaming all sorts of things on Hujr ibn Adi that led to Hujr ibn Adi being killed. He just, Ziad ibn Abihi, as we can see, his obsession, he was not going to let Hujr ibn Adi get away and wind up with Muawiyah. And so Ziad ibn Abihi was a different animal. Now, the thing about this story, I have to give you a few caveats, is that, as I mentioned, much of the information comes from Tariq Atabari, and Atabari has two problems with it. Uh, not, the, not the man Atabari, but his book. Number one is that much of Atabari's um, information comes from a Shiite historian named Abu Mihnaf, and Abu Mihnaf almost certainly was biased to make the Umayyads look bad and make the Shiites look good, almost certainly. Second thing was that Atabari lived during the time of the Abbasid dynasty, and the Abbasids, they overthrew the Umayyads, and so it would have been in Atabari's best interest to make the Umayyads look as look bad. I'm not saying that he necessarily did skew things to please the Abbasids, but certainly it would have been he he would not have been hurt had he had he done so. That being said, just want you to let, I, I do believe the basic outline of the story is true. Hajjid ibn Adi was almost certainly executed by the Umayyads, whether all the details are true or not. I can only go by Atabari. That's all the information we have these days. We don't have, there's really no information before Atabari to um, corroborate or or prove things wrong. So we just have to take it as it is. And Allah knows best. So the Muslim podcast of the week for this week will be the podcast New Books in Islamic Studies. It is hosted by Shar Ali Tarin. And he interviews authors of different books about Islamic studies, hence the name of the podcast. Now, just so you understand, he takes a secular academic approach to these things. And so his podcast is more informative than it is entertaining. So just bear that in mind. But with that being said, it is it does still give you great exposure to the breadth of uh, secular Islamic studies, the breadth of is- secular Islamic studies. There are many books written about Islam and Islamic studies and Sharia and fiqh and things that are not written from a religious perspective, but simply from a an academic college university type perspective. I, I hope you understand and get my drift. Nonetheless, I think it would be great exposure for you to at least hear what some of these authors have to say so you can learn and be exposed to the many different types of thinking in Islam and this this huge thing that we call Islam. So with that, I will include first a clip of the show of um, New Books in Islamic Studies after this, as well as a link to it in the show notes. Speaking of which, show notes will be available at Islamic learningmaterials.com slash hujr hujr is spelled h-u-j-r islamiclearningmaterials.com slash hujr for the show notes there 
You'll be able to get a transcript for the show, links to my social media connections, link to the podcast of the week, as well as link to Patreon to support the show, which you can do at patreon.com slash Islamic history. And with that, we're going to wrap it up and give you a short clip of new books in Islamic studies. Until next week, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Hello, Isa, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you, Shirley. Uh, well, it's uh, such a pleasure to have you on this show and uh, to have read uh, your book. As I was saying before, we uh, started recording this conversation that this is uh, such a multi-layered and an extensive uh, uh, book that we'll try to scratch the surface of today in our conversation. But our uh, first question on new books in Islamic studies is always uh, biographical. Isa, uh, mm. could you share with our listeners uh, a bit about your narrative, uh, how you became a scholar of Islam, scholar interested in Islam and Muslim societies? Um, it's a tricky question to answer. I think that uh, the answer will change. And I certainly don't think of myself as a scholar of Islam so much as somebody who's who's got some pressing questions about how contemporary Muslims and um, Islamic texts are thought of today. And that, of course, begins with, for me, having grown up in various parts of the Muslim world and then having come as an undergraduate to take classes in Islamic studies from people like Leila Ahmed and Rob Wisnowski and um, Jamal Kafadar um, and to realize uh, that the world in which we were being, uh, the world they were describing and the the world of Islamic doctrine and uh, Muslim texts didn't quite resemble the world in which I grew up. Uh, and so as, as, um, <laughs> as you know, the nerdy undergraduate and graduate student generally does, I went into the library and looked for the shelf that would explain how we got from the ninth to the tenth and the ninth and the tenth centuries of the common era into the contemporary period. Um, and that shelf at the time, uh, seemed very short. Um, and so the, the dissertation and most of my graduate work uh, leading up to the mid-2000s was about trying to figure out this question of why the difference uh, between the texts and uh, the imaginary of contemporary Islam and what the institutional underpinnings of that imaginary are. 